Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run a website called Production Advice, where I aim to help you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And joining me, as always, this week is John Tidy. Hey, guys, what's up? We'll jump straight into it. This week's topic is, if you can't hear it, does it really matter? This is kind of inspired by a few conversations I've been having online. Some people listening will know which ones I mean, but I'm not going to get into that now. Um, But there's actually three different kind of aspects to this question. So the first one is like these online conversations I've been having where people are debating with me whether it's okay to do things that are technically incorrect because you probably can't hear if you do them wrong. The recent examples are it's okay to not use dither in certain situations, this is what people are saying, or uh, intersample peaks in your audio don't don't matter. We haven't done a show on intersample peaks yet. Um, maybe we will in future, but I, I kind of mentioned them briefly. They're, they're kind of theoretical peaks that are predicted in the audio when the loudness is high and the, the real peak level is very close to zero. And they're kind of a warning that you might get clipping further down the, the audio chain, either when it gets played back through a digital to analog converter, or you convert it to MP3, or you use sample rate conversion, or some kind of processing that isn't programmed or optimized as well as it might be. There is an episode on Dither, so anybody who wants to find out about Dither can head back and listen to that, and we'll put a link in the show notes on themasteringshow.com. Actual real digital clipping is another thing that is technically incorrect, uh, but some people argue that it's okay to do it sometimes because it's not always blatantly audible. Um, All of these things are technically wrong, but in some situations you may not hear them. So there are people saying, well, don't worry about dither and don't worry about intersample peaks and all the rest of it. So that's one aspect of the, if you can't hear it, it doesn't matter uh, phenomenon. (laughs) Ignorance is Um, bliss. Well, Let's not let's not get it calling people ignorant at this early stage. <laughs> and John and I are going to talk about a few more examples of things like that. Um, then there's the classic. You hear this all the time. If it sounds good, it is good, um, which is basically used as a kind of catch-all excuse for doing whatever the hell you like. So that's another aspect. And then the final one is the argument I hear a lot, which is that people only listen to music these days on phone speakers and portable devices and crappy earbuds, they're not hearing any of this stuff that we hear in our studios. So really, why worry about them? Um, So those are the kind of three aspects of the suggestion that you don't need to worry about things if you can't hear them. Um, And that's what we're going to talk about on this show, whether whether that makes sense, whether there's situations where that is correct. We're going to talk about what actually does it mean to say that something is inaudible? Can you ever say that something is inaudible? And yeah, we're going to just talk around the issue. So, I mean, John, what's your immediate reaction to when somebody says to you, if it sounds good, it is good, and they're doing something that really bugs you? I've thought of another example. There's a situation. If somebody is transferring an analog tape, you have to align the tape heads. Otherwise, when you put the thing into mono, top end drops off and everything sounds kind of swirly and weird. I just feel that's always wrong, (laughs) even if you like the way that it sounds. Mm -hmm. I mean, how about you? Have you got any examples? I guess like sometimes with microphone techniques, 
I have to question if I'm hearing phase issues and whether that's acceptable. Or certainly things get invented by doing things wrong, like MS recording, purposely putting a signal out of phase to create a stereo image, something that's on paper, or if you're reading that, it sounds crazy, but then it actually sounds really good. So in some situations, yeah. Yeah. So there's a bit of that. I I have to be open to it, all the possibilities. And yeah, but I have to go with my experience and, and what I'm hearing and everything with sound is subjective or not everything, but a lot of things are subjective. So whether something sounds good and is good is up to the person listening to it. Did I just say nothing after all <laughs> the end of all that? I feel like I have just went around in a circle and said nothing. Somebody actually accused us on one of the earlier episodes of spending an entire episode saying basically nothing. So <laughs> I think that's okay. If we can do a whole episode, then you're allowed a couple of uh, sentences. Uh, I mean, I, I think I, I agree. And I mean, it's it's kind of jumping ahead in what I was thinking of talking about slightly. But I mean, you know, there are, I mean, it, just talking about microphone placement, I'm uh, halfway through uh, Jeff Emmerich's book about recording the Beatles. Um, I'm a huge Beatles fan and I've read about five or six books about their time in the studio, how they recorded their albums and all the rest of it. Um, and this one is one of the best. If anybody has, I mean, I think it's been around for ages. I kind of amazed I haven't read it before. If anybody hasn't read it, I think if you're listening to this show, you will love it. But I mean, Jeff Emmerich's first session with the Beatles as uh, their recording engineer, as opposed to an assistant engineer, was the first session of recording the album Revolver. Um, and that's so that's and the first song was Tomorrow Never Knows, where John Lennon asked George Martin to make it sound like he was a monk singing from the top of a mountain. Um, and the way Jeff Emmerich tells it, George kind of turned around and looked at him and said, Yeah, I'm sure Jeff will be able to sort something out for you. Um, <laughs> if anybody doesn't know the story, they ended up putting John's voice through a Leslie amplifier, loudspeaker. Um, which previously had only ever been used on stuff like Hammond organs uh, and things. And it's the first time that that was done. Um, and Lennon loved it. So in some ways that was lucky for Jeff because he earned their trust yeah. just like that. Um, but uh, the other thing he did on that session was he broke uh, a fundamental rule at EMI Studios, which later became Abbey Road Studios. Uh, prior to that session, the rule was you don't put any mics closer than two feet to a drum because they were concerned that the, the microphones would get damaged by the, the high sound levels. Uh, and Jeff was convinced he could get a better sound by moving the mic right in. And he did. And, you know, I mean, these days everybody records drums that way. Yeah. Um, and they're just a ton of examples. You know, when they first recorded revolution uh, on the white album, they plugged an electric guitar directly into the mixing desk without going through an amplifier first, and then cranked up the gain. So it distorted horribly. And you have this amazing, wild distorted guitar sound on that track that broke pretty much every rule there was i mean emi studios had a lot more rules than most places you know this was the place where everybody had to wear white coats still um and there's some really funny stories about that in the book by the way but they pretty much created that a whole new way of playing electric guitar so as a fan of the beatles i can't 
say, no, you mustn't ever do things that are technically incorrect. Uh, because, well, A, that would be crazy. And B, I'd be, you know, you can't be a Beatles yeah. fan and say that. But not dithering isn't one of those situations. Not in my opinion. No. I mean, I mean, the other aspect of this is there are certain, there are all of these things that we've mentioned so far, dithering, intersample peaks, digital clipping. Um, I mean, a few other examples I've got here are not, you know, digital audio that's out of sync, where you record from one piece of digital gear to another, and one of them is not locked digitally, that the clock is not locked between those machines. You'll still get audio, um, but you'll get quite heinous jitter. Um, and the, the two clocks will drift relative to each other. So occasionally you'll get clicks. Um, I've done that by accident sometimes. And nobody's going to tell me it's inaudible. You might not kind of listen to something and go, oh, the clocks weren't synced properly when that was recorded. But if you compare before and after, um, there was one example where I did it with a, a choir recording. The stereo image just completely collapsed on the one that uh, was out of sync in comparison to the original recording. Another one is DC offset. There's most situations where that's not something that you can hear, but it does actually have some consequences with further processing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because a DC offset, you know, the normally you have alternating current in the in the wires, and they they alternate around zero volts. DC offset is where you have voltage on there constantly. It doesn't cause the the current to change, so it doesn't make any sound on its own. Um, although you do hear a click if you start and stop playback, which is one reason why you might not want it. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. That's if you have it basically changes the voltages of everything going through any gear further down the line. So if you have any analog processing that is designed to operate without a DC offset, it's going to change the way that that stuff works. Another one you could argue for is just the absolute phase or the, the polarity of the signal. Obviously, if you have one speaker wired the opposite way around to the other one, it's going to sound really weird. Yeah. But if you have both speakers wired backwards, most people will not hear a difference. There are a few kind of esoteric test tones where you would be able to hear a difference to that kind of stuff. Um, but most music, most people will not hear it. Uh, so all of these things are... Th there's Nobody can say the theory behind those things is wrong. You know, the, the theory of using dither is you can't argue against it. The theory of avoiding intersample peaks is sound. But, for example, with dither, if you're talking about a 24-bit audio signal and you have a reasonable amount of analog noise in there, the chances of you being able to hear the consequences of failing to use dither are pretty low. Some people would say they're nil. And so if you're designing plugins, for example, where you have to do thousands of calculations over and over on the audio, you almost certainly won't use dither at every stage of those processes because it's just a waste of processing power and you can deal with it all at the end of the chain. Um, intersample peaks uh, might be audible in some situations. More research is needed on that, I think, before you can say categorically. Uh, but there are lots of situations where you definitely won't hear it. For me, though, I think this is possibly the interesting aspect of it. My perspective when I talk about these issues is always from my experience, which is as a mastering engineer. And mastering is a very different situation than recording or mixing. Uh, you know, the Beatles are the artists. If they want to distort the hell out of an electric guitar, or I think Lennon once requested that he be recorded suspended from a rope swinging around 
the microphone, <laughs> you know, whatever they want to do, providing they don't kill themselves in the process, is fair game. But for me as a mastering engineer, I have been in the situation, well, one example that springs to mind was when a classical engineer got very upset with me because he provided a, a master that was meant to be transferred flat and the peak level didn't get above minus six dBs for the entire recording. And according to the Red Book specification for that Philips set out for CDs, that's actually a spec violation. So I turned it up by, I think, three or four dBs so that the peaks were just shy of zero and copied it across. And he got very upset because he was using some kind of fancy noise shaping and dither. And I basically messed up, in theory, I messed up the benefits of that by changing the gain because that dither is intended to operate at the lowest significant bit of the audio signal. Whether anybody would ever have heard that, I don't know. But in that case, as a mastering engineer, I was at fault. Even though I had good intentions in doing what I had done, he was able to come back and say, no, you've got to do it again. And I didn't have a leg to stand on because, you know, rule number one of mastering is do no harm. And if you either deliberately or by accident introduce a technical fault into the audio and the client notices and complains, that's a problem, even if it's completely inaudible. So, and I think that's quite a different perspective that I come from than most people who kind of read my comments about dither or intersample peaks or anything else come from. If you, I think if you come from the opposite end of the, the spectrum of recording and mixing and being almost purely creative, you know, you are concerned with technical things, but it's not a huge part of the, I guess it is a huge part of the recording process, but you know what, you know what I'm saying? That, you know, that's not primary concern. If, if the first rule of mastering is do no harm, you know, the first rule of recording and mixing is make great music has nothing to do with the technicalities of it. Um, does that make sense? It does to me. <laughs> Excellent. Another example that we were talking about just before we started recording, uh, John, was the phase relationship between mic microphones. You mentioned it a little bit earlier on. Um, and I remember when uh, Slough Hallerton sent both of us some recordings that he'd done of an orchestra. Um, and he sent us two versions, one where he'd measured the distance to every microphone and used delays to correct for the difference in timing for the audio signals arriving, and another one where he'd just set up all of his mics as usual. Do you remember that? I do, and the result was kind of surprising. It was almost unexpected what the difference was. Well, exactly, because I, I was very curious to hear the results of this because... It's an interesting, you know, in theory, correcting the the phase relationship of all of those microphones is absolutely the right thing to do because you're getting closer to how it would be if you, you know, we we don't have one pair of ears in our head and another one over there over the top of the, the woodwinds or the, the brass. Um, so in theory, correcting all of the delays from all of those microphones should give you a more realistic result. And... Uh, Slough sent me these two versions and I took and I remember emailing back and going, oh, I'm amazed. I can't believe it. That, you know, the, the phase corrected version is so much better. It's there's more depth, there's more space, there's more uh it's more exciting, it sounds richer, it sounds more 
involving. It's, you know, I'm, I'm a convert. I'm so glad that you did uh, this test. And he emailed back and said, yeah, well, it was a blind test. And actually the one that you preferred was the one without all of the delay compensation for the multi-miking. Do you remember which one you liked? I don't remember which one I chose. I think I would probably be fine with either, but um, but definitely had a, a preference one way or the other. And I think it was that I preferred the original, the unadjusted one. I right. You asked me earlier and you told me not to answer right away um, if I adjust phase on drums, if I shift the microphones around or, or use a rotating uh, like a waveform rotating plugin, and I I do if I hear a problem. If simply flipping the polarity on the channel strip or in an EQ or something like that doesn't solve the problem that I'm hearing, then I will shift the timing. And in editing, sometimes I do the wrong thing and I shift the kick so that it hits at the exact same time as the snare, because <laughs> that's what the client wants. Well, and there's another case of if it sounds right, it is right, I guess. Now, and that's interesting because I, uh, I haven't recorded any drums for for years now. And back in the day when I was was recording drums fairly regularly, I didn't have the technology to apply individual delays on every. Actually, I had a digital desk, so I guess I probably could have done, but I wasn't doing it. It never even occurred to me to test that. It's got to be very, very slight. Sometimes less than a millisecond change. Um, yeah. what, I, what I'm actually doing though is uh, I will take the overheads and I'll make sure that the left and right overheads are uh, in optimal phase so that the kick or the mm -hmm. snare is is coming through at the exact same moment through those channels. And I'll commit that to the wave file. Uh, and I'll do the same thing with any stereo overheads, but I won't change timing of so that the room mics come in at the exact same time as the close mics. I wouldn't do it to be the exact same time, but I would correct any, like where it's too far or if it's out of time musically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because I know that some people, because now you can get plugins that will analyze a bunch of tracks and come up with what, in theory, is the optimal phase alignment between them. Um, and I've never tested that. I think I might have heard some demonstrations of that. I know a few guys that are, that swear by those. Um, but for me, it's, it's like, if I hear a problem, I'll fix it. And it's not, it doesn't take me that long to fix it because I mix in Reaper. Hint, hint guys. <laughs> <laughs> Head over to the reaperblog.net to see what John is talking about. Um, yeah, well, and you raised an interesting point again, just before we started recording, which is, and uh, well, you kind of hinted at it there, which is that you will fix something like that if it seems like a worthwhile use of time. Yeah. And, and that's one of the interesting things about Slough's test, which is that I don't know how long it took him to measure the distances of all of those mics and record them and then dial in all of the delays afterwards. But it must have been a significant investment in time. And and he is a blind man as well. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help. <laughs> it's, it's not a matter of just looking at the waveforms and correcting them. He's a blind man. He can't do that. So... Exactly. Yeah. It makes, makes it kind of even more difficult than it would be for the rest of us. I mean, if he'd heard a clear improvement in the sound, I guess he would have decided that was worthwhile and carried on doing it. But for me personally, you know, there's no way that that would have been worth it. I don't think he probably would have told us about it if he, if he was conclusive in 
what he was hearing. Like if it was absolutely worth the effort, he probably wouldn't have told us. He probably just would have continued the project. But the fact that he double check. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Because I think like us, it probably went the opposite way than he expected. So, and I think that's a great point. And just kind of going back to some of the other stuff that we were talking about, you know, even leaving aside my kind of whole, I'm a mastering engineer, I must do things the right way mindset. For me, fixing all of these or a lot of these things that we're talking about, you know, did the intersample peaks, digital clipping, making sure the sync is correct, uh, DC offset, all, all of this stuff. I mean, and even using a, a plugin to correct the phase in the drums, if that's how you want to do it, all of those things are quick and easy. You know, if it's a huge investment of time just to just to kind of cross the T's and dot the I's in a technical sense, and it doesn't have any audible benefit, that's the kind of situation where I would agree. And that's another pragmatic situation where you might say, actually, that's probably not worth the effort. But the vast majority of these are really easy to get right. Um, I do kind of feel like that um, and, and in a mastering sense, would be using external or third-party software that only does sample rate conversion. And like, let's say you buy one that costs $1,000 and it just does this one thing, you know, 10% better than your DAW, even 1% better than your DAW. Um, That is not a good use of my time or money. And I I think the sample rate conversion is very inaudible in most cases. Unless you're doing it purposely to be the fastest way and then and, and there's usually consequences of that but if you're I doing mean, like high quality settings that your DAW chooses then it's usually pretty good yeah so just to be completely clear that when I mentioned sample rate conversion I was talking specifically about within to sample peaks if you have a yeah. piece of audio that includes into sample peaks and you sample rate convert it and you don't reduce the level to accommodate the extra peaks then you will cause clipping with any converter no matter how good or bad it is so that's kind of one issue that's that's one of the reasons i take into sample peaks seriously um yeah just as an example um in in one of the conversations i was having about on this topic um there is a test tone for checking processing and gear for the possible effects of intersample peaks um it's a and it's just a sine wave but basically this file if you import it into uh, so the original file was 4416. If you import it into, say, a 96 kilohertz session uh, in Logic or Pro Tools, you will get heinous distortion, like really, really super audible distortion from this test tone, which is artificially generated to reveal this stuff. But that's kind of one situation. So basically, and that's the kind of thing that people might not know they were doing, they might not realize, right? You just take, you have a piece of 16... 44 audio you want to bring it into a high sample rate session you bring it in and without realizing your uh i call it baking in because it's actually there in the file this extra distortion that was there and it may not be anywhere near as audible as it is with that test tone but even so you've unwittingly introduced a technical fault so that to me is a really good reason for just avoiding into sample peaks because if you avoid into sample peaks that's not going to happen even if you do import it into a session in that way. Then there's the question of different sample rate converters versus each other. I mean, I guess all of this stuff comes down to a sort of a cost-benefit calculation, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. I think I would probably agree with you. Um, 
I've shared before on the podcast, and we can put it in the show notes again, uh, there's a website that compares, in a technical sense, pretty much every sample rate converter you can get. And you can you can check out all the specifications yourself. And most of the major DAWs these days will do a very good job of sample rate converting the audio. Uh, you know, maybe not quite as good as the absolute best, but very, very respectable. And I think, especially outside of a mastering context, I would agree that kind of spending $1,000 on something else that does an even better job probably isn't worth it for most people. In a mastering situation where our job is to get the music to sound the absolute best it can be, I think there's an argument that says that maybe you should make that investment and that that's exactly what the clients are paying you for. It's one of those things that's very difficult to test and and to hear the differences. Well, and that's another interesting point about this whole topic, is a lot of these differences that we're talking about so far are very difficult to hear. You know, uh, the effects of not dithering a piece of audio are subtle. Um, when they're audible, they're quite noticeable, in my opinion, and uh, they're worth avoiding. But in lots of situations with lots of material, most people would go, eh. And in fact, that leads us on to the the kind of the aspect, well, the, the next kind of point, if you like, um, which is related to the to the the other issue that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, which is the argument that nobody is listening on the same quality of gear that we listen to in the studio. Everybody's listening on earbuds and mobile phone speakers and sound bars and crappy TVs and, you know, DAB radios and all the rest of it. So they're not hearing any of that stuff. So why should we care? Um, and that kind of leads nicely into the, I think maybe the key issue of this, right? Which is, what does it mean to say that something is inaudible? Like just a really obvious example. If there's 20 Hertz rumble in a, in a recording, uh, let's say, you know, you, it was recorded in a, an, a room that wasn't soundproofed and there's a, a train track or a, a motorway or something going past outside. There could be all this subsonic sound being picked up by the mics and going into the recording. And if you're using NS10s, say, which are a classic high-quality studio monitor, you know, the uh, industry standard, you might say, but they have no bass at all. You're, you're not going to hear much below 60 hertz out of an NS10. You just wouldn't know that that frequency is there. And that can have an audible effect in all kinds of ways. I mean, if you just play it back on a bigger pair of speakers, you're going to hear it. But also it can affect the way that compressors react. Um, you could It could potentially lift a signal so that things are running hotter than you intend. You know, it, there's all kinds of possible side effects of that rumble being in there. Or if the artist is kicking the mic stand, that's a kind of even more annoying example. You'll get this really deep thud in the, the signal that you might not hear on small speakers. That's a kind of really clear situation, which is really important for us to hear things at a high enough quality to make good decisions. And that kind of, I think that applies across the whole spectrum of examples. You can think. In fact, um, I did a blog post where I did a demonstration of this. We'll link to that in the show notes on themasteringshow.com um, as well. Um, but it uses, it uses a video analogy. So there's basically, there was a, I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the show before, but if I have, people have to bear with me. Um, I'm a huge Peter Gabriel fan. And there is, uh, I have a Blu-ray of one of his 
uh, his tours from, I don't know, I guess the late 80s, maybe it was, uh, the Secret World tour that I originally had on VHS. Then I bought it on DVD when it came out first on DVD. Now I have it on Blu-ray. And the reason I have it on Blu-ray is I saw a feature on the remastering process. They actually, it was shot on film. So they went back and rescanned all of the original negatives, went through a, a really careful restoration process, cleaning them all up in order to produce the new Blu-ray, the new visuals for the Blu-ray release. Um, and this video offered a comparison between the original DVD release and the Blu-ray. And the first time I watched it, I actually preferred the DVD version. But I was watching on YouTube, and this was several years ago now. They were only just introducing HD, uh, the, the high-resolution video streams on YouTube. And I thought, well, these guys, you know, they know what they're talking about. These are, these are pros. I need to watch this in HD. So I clicked the HD button, and I waited about 10 minutes for the, for the video to buffer. And when I watched the HD version, suddenly it, it I just leapt out of me. I was like, oh, wow, in comparison... The DVD version was full of, uh, had jagged edges. It was full of kind of grit. The contrast was overblown. The, the, the colors were oversaturated. There was all kinds of noise and grain in the image, whereas the HD version just looked pristine and beautiful. And if anybody's wondering what that has to do with audio, the point is that little YouTube window that I first watched in in that lower quality stream was basically hiding all those differences from me. The image was probably lower quality than the original DVD, so I missed all of those flaws that were there in the D the DVD version, the, the lower quality version, and I couldn't see all of the benefits that the new HD transfer was giving until I watched the high enough quality video. And the same thing applies to audio. You know, our monitoring can hide all kinds of details and flaws from us um, that it's important for us to know that it's there. It's In fact, as a mastering engineer, I would say it's vital, it's crucial that you know that that stuff is there. Um, have you ever been caught out by that, John? Have you ever had you know something where you thought everything was fine and then you shifted to a different listening system? It was like, oh, crap, I need to fix that? Definitely have. It, it, usually on headphones, it's because uh, those are the most readily available second set of monitors that I have. I mean, I guess other than the other set of monitors I have connected. Um, <laughs> I usually switch to headphones first, like yeah. the AKG K240s, just because they're always, I always have them not there and, and you know, they're so comfy to listen to music on as well. Um, so there's, there's, yeah, lot, lots of pops and clicks and DSing and stuff like that. I, that I, uh, reference with on those. Other than those, I, I, I you know, I just kind of have to guess at what my client's listening on often. Yeah, and I mean that's where it comes down to. Like, if it sounds right on their system, we can only guess and you know go with. Best well, that's a, that's an interesting kind of tangent that we. In fact, we don't need to go off on that because we talked about that <laughs> way back in the. I talked about that before you joined the show, John. Back in I think it was episode might have been episode one or two. The three M's of of, of mastering: uh, mindset, monitoring, and metering. Um, yeah, and, and in terms of monitoring, you know, one of the goals of. Uh, a proper mastering setup is to a be at higher fidelity than anybody else, ideally, but certainly the vast majority of your clients, um, and b to really understand how that translates out into the real world. So yeah, we'll avoid that rabbit hole. But uh, 
it's interesting you mentioned the clients, you know, being the ultimate judge, because of course that's that's another aspect of this whole what is audible thing, and that is the person who's listening. I think maybe fifty percent of the time, when I have clients in for an attended session, and I go, "Oh, there's a click there. I'll just remove that for you." The client can't hear it, even when I go, "Okay, one, two, three, there." Quite often they can't hear it, and I, I remember back in the day. Um, when I first started mastering, the only way we had to, this is when, this is before Pro Tools, we had sound tools, which was stereo audio editing on one of the, the one of the old Macs, you know, the ones with the, the kind of the really tall monitors with the, anyway, um, so back in the dim and distant past, um, and there was no de-clicking algorithms, there were no spectral editors, there was no Isotope RX, um, the only way that we could get rid of clicks was to zoom right in on the waveform display and hope that we could actually see a visible zigzag in the waveform. And if you could, or if you could figure out where it was by kind of squelching the audio backwards and forth, you know, at, at slow speed, even if you couldn't see it, then you could get the, had a pencil tool that you could go and draw in a curve to smooth out the difference in the waveform. Um, and the, the kind of the fun thing about that was quite often the clients will be going, no, no, I can't hear it. No, I can't hear it. And then you zoom in and you go, there, there it is. And it's just in a very shallow, egocentric way, it was always kind of nice to for them to realize that you weren't insane in saying that there was a click that they couldn't hear. But that's one example. And I mean, you know, there's a ton of other examples where people just focus on different things. Uh, it's something that we uh, touched on when we talked about MP3 encoding in an earlier show. Um, there are some, you know, humans are, our brains are amazing pattern recognition machines. You know, we, we look out into the world and we, we, all of our senses kind of decode the information that comes into us and we figure out patterns. So we're great at facial recognition. And in fact, our brains are so good at it that we see faces in clouds and trees and burnt onto pieces of toast and all this kind of stuff. The same thing applies to audio, but in order to recognize a pattern, you have to know what the pattern is. Um, and there are some faults, audio faults, like I would say digital clipping is one of these. Digital clipping distortion doesn't sound like other kinds of distortion that people might be used to. So if you say to somebody who hasn't heard it before, oh, it's distorting, then listening for a completely different pattern, distortion hmm. to them means something completely different than it does than the sound of digital distortion. When you point it out to them, and suddenly they know what the pattern is, suddenly they can hear it, and they will hear it from then on whenever it happens. But you have to have you have to go through that learning process. So, you know, there's how good is the monitoring, how good are your ears, and have you been, I guess, trained? You don't have to literally be trained, or have you trained yourself, or have you just spotted the problem that we're talking about? And the point about all of this is, in any one of those situations, if, if those three things aren't in place, somebody might say, well, I can't hear it, it's inaudible. And actually, no, it's not inaudible. It's inaudible to you on that material, on that listening setup, but it could well be audible in all kinds of other situations. So, and then you get into the whole issue of how do you, you know, when you think you can hear a difference, how do you know you're really hearing a difference? Because sometimes we fool ourselves. Um, and for anybody who wants to find out more about that, you need to go back and listen to the show that I did with Ronan Chris Murphy, um, where we talk about confirmation bias and ABX testing. And everybody will be very glad to hear that there just isn't time to talk about that on this show. <laughs> <laughs> 
something I like to do with my clients is to point out how loud their tambourine is in their song. And they had never thought about it before, and now it's the only thing that they can think about. Something about tambourine is an amazing thing to fit perfectly in the mix until you listen for it, and then it's instantly louder than everything else. That's interesting. I'm going to have to test that out now. I haven't. <laughs> I haven't. Sibilance is something for me. He said sibilantly. Yeah. Um, but I'm quite sibilant blind or deaf. Listen to um, White Zombie. The Astro Creep album is just like you don't notice the tambourine in there, like fulfilling the role of of doing like a, a fast thirty second or sixteenth note uh, momentum to the songs. Mm-hmm. But if you li- like, it's in every song. And if you listen for it, it's like, holy crap, that was so loud all the way through. But you like, you can listen to the song a hundred times before you notice it. And you're like, wow, that's the only thing in the song right now. It's, it's a tambourine solo through this entire song. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm guessing exactly the same thing must apply to Cowbell, right? It's probably something like that. But I think, um, <laughs> I think Saturday Night Live made uh, awareness of the Cowbell. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess everybody now is aware of the cowbell. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. I'm going to have to, but I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, that's, everybody knows the same thing happening in mixing. You know, uh, the drummer is obsessed with the squeaky pedal on his kick drum or, you know, the fact that the ride is not loud enough or whatever. But but meanwhile, the vocalist thinks that the most important problem is that he or she is too loud or too quiet or whatever. And the guitarist, you know, is not hearing enough tone. Or, and it's that's all about focus, right? And that's yes. another thing that's, that's hard. Um, yeah, I was going to ask whether there was ever a situation where you have either been convinced you were hearing a difference or were convinced you didn't hear a difference and then you actually did a, an A-B comparison and suddenly your opinion was kind of turned on its head. Well, there's plenty of times that I've accidentally uh, EQ'd things in bypass, and oh, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, or you're tweaking the compressor and you forgot to turn up the ratio to begin with, uh, and you're hearing the difference there. Attack and release make no difference when the ratio is at one to one, so uh, don't <laughs> fool yourself with that. <laughs> um, or you're doing it on the wrong channel. <laughs> Oh, and and then there's also the the thing you, you you spend an hour creating the perfect effects chain for your your master, and then you bypass it or you listen to it at equal level with the original, and it's like, oh, that was probably five minutes of work that took an hour. You know, you just, it it basically boils down to I I did this little EQ move that made a difference, and everything else is is like using ten different types of grit of sandpaper to make it smooth when. The first one felt pretty smooth to begin with. <laughs> yeah, well, and, or, or you've you know you, you kind of you do one move and then another one moves it in the other direction and you just kind of oscillate around and end up with something that yeah is almost exactly what you started with. Yeah, I mean, and and that's why it's so important to be um, not cynical about things but skeptical, you know. Um, and I think I told the story on one of the shows before um, about when. Uh, when that happened to me where a client was convinced that the, the pressed CDs sounded different than his test copy, um, which had also, which was a, a recorded CD, you know, one that I'd burned off for him. Um, and I, I got them in and I listened and I thought, Oh, he's right. Wow. You know, this is, 
that's theoretically impossible, but I can hear exactly what he's talking about. And I went through this huge testing process um, of comparing these two versions. I did something like 80 listening trials altogether and eventually discovered that what I was hearing was the difference between two different CD players, but not the discs. So it it happens to everybody. Um, And I think it cuts both ways. You know, you need to test to make sure that you can't hear something and you need to test to make sure that you can hear something. And incidentally, just for anybody doing any kind of testing, one thing to watch out for is sometimes there is a difference that you can hear, but it's the opposite effect than you you expect. And that can really mess up your ability to accurately do one of those tests. Um, so for example, lots of people assume that using dither correctly will make something sound uh, more open and clear and spacious and all the rest of it. Whereas actually the opposite can be true. In some situations when you don't use dither, it makes things sound more brittle and edgy, um, which people perceive as having a little bit more top. So when you compare the two, the one with dither sounds a little bit softer and smoother and warmer. And if you're expecting the opposite of that, when you try and test yourself, it can completely mess up even though you're convinced, you uh, for me personally, there are things that I've tested where I'm like, well, I can definitely hear a difference with these and these, but my test scores are not showing it. Why? And that's actually a really good clue is to go, hang on, okay, maybe this is doing the opposite of what I think it is. One little tip that I have for anybody, you know, if, if anybody's listening to this and thinking, well, I don't know whether my monitoring is good enough and I don't know whether my ears are good enough. I think one really simple and easy test that people should do is the polarity test. Okay, so get a stereo track up in your DAW. Take a stereo sound, something that's on a stereo channel, like a keyboard sound or a piano, or those are probably the two best. Piano is a great is a great test. And hit the polarity invert button on just one of the channels, either the left or the right. If your monitoring is good and your sitting in a sweet spot, that should leap out at you. It should be really easy to hear that. If you can't, and it doesn't, maybe you need to improve your monitoring. Uh, That could be by adding some extra acoustic treatment because you've got reflections off the wall that are confusing things. You might need to change the monitoring position or the speaker position, whatever it is. But I kind of, that's a, a really fundamental sort of baseline quality test, I would say. And then, you know, there are others like looking at the frequency response of your system. Can you hear really low stuff? Can you hear really high stuff? All those kind of things. But uh, yeah, that's kind of a really quick shorthand test, um, I think. And you can also train train yourself to hear that difference by, by doing it and hitting the mono button and listening to the difference or just flicking it in and out, especially with headphones on. That can be a great way to learn how it sounds and then take the headphones off and see if you can also hear it on the speakers. Um, Something I thought of when you were mentioning that uh, was testing yourself for panning and training yourself to hear it, but also making sure that your speaker's in the right position. Because if your speakers are too close together, you're not going to hear the phantom center. You're going to hear it kind of coming out of both speakers simultaneously, and pan moves aren't going to have the correct impact. But if your speakers are far enough apart, but not too far, you'll actually hear it as a third speaker that doesn't exist, the phantom center. So uh, like a sine wave signal, 
um, and put it on your in your grid and then pan it in, let's say, 10% uh, changes left to right from extreme to the, through the center and then over to the other. And then just identify if you can visualize those different positions or if you can, or if it just kind of sounds somewhere in between, uh, especially in those middle places. A lot of people like just left, center, right mixing, um, not just because, well, kind of because it it solves that problem of uh, in between things that you can't hear. So yeah, that's interesting. And 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 left, center, right LCR mixing is another little rabbit hole we can avoid <laughs> today, but might be interesting to come back in future. Um, I agree with everything you said there, except I personally wouldn't use a test tone to test that as a sine wave because I actually find that it can be quite hard to hear the directionality of a sine wave. I would just pick an instrument, you know, a vocal or some kind of normal instrument and, and then do exactly what you described with panning things around. Another just kind of interesting point maybe that comes from that is that the first studio I ever worked in, I was working in it as a mastering studio, but it also had a live room attached to it. Um, and just because of the way the building was laid out, I was sitting with the speakers firing across the room so that the shorter dimension of the room, so the room was wider than it was long in terms of where I sat. Normally you would have the speakers firing down the longest length of the of the room. Um, and also they were quite far apart because there was a big glass window in between so that you could see through into the live room. Um, I really loved that setup, even though technically speaking, I think the speaker was probably a little bit too far out, but they were BMW 801 speakers. They were amazing speakers. And often uh, it, the room was later on set up for surround sound and had a much smaller center speaker above the window to the live room. And often clients would come in and think that that speaker was on because the image was so uh, accurate in there that anything that was panned centrally felt like it was coming out of that center speaker, even though the speaker and actually the amplifier was switched off. So that's a kind of an extreme example of what you would like. And yeah, you're absolutely right. The opposite is if you can't hear pan positions clearly, or if you don't hear when you phase invert one channel, um, then for whatever reason, things are not set up well enough and you're going to have problems hearing all kinds of other stuff um, as well. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think we've probably uh, covered that topic fairly exhaustively as anybody who's listened to a few episodes of the show knows that we tend to do. Um, I hope that was useful for you guys listening. Um, please do head over to themasteringshow.com to uh, check out all the links that we have mentioned along the way and also sign up for the newsletter to be notified of future episodes. Um, if you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review Apple pay a lot of attention to that and it helps other people find the show as well. So you help spread the word to other people. Thanks to John for being my co-host and for mixing and editing the show. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks for listening. Absolutely. Come on. You can do better than that. Hey guys, what's up? I dropped my fidget spinner. <laughs> you're using a fidget spinner while you're recording the podcast? <laughs>